Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the latest edition of Coronavirus Stories. I'm sure most of us by now will have heard theories of where coronavirus comes from and how it has spread so quickly through the human population. But in such a fast-moving global phenomenon, I thought it might be time for a bit of a recap. Where are we now and how did we get here? Here's a man who knows. So my name is Dr. Connor Bamford. I'm a virologist at the uh, Wellcome Wilson Institute for Experimental Medicine at Queen's University in Belfast. So Connor, where did coronavirus come from? So we know there are lots of different coronaviruses. There are you know, a lot of animals, a lot of birds, a lot of mammals, pigs, cats, humans. They all have their own kind of coronaviruses. And, and humans now have seven coronaviruses four of which cause the common cold, and three of which are these emerging viruses that jump into humans, um, probably from other animals. In the first case would be SARS coronavirus, the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus that popped up in the early 2000s and then was subsequently extinguished. Then we have MERS, which was a slightly more recent um, coronavirus that jumped from camels in the Middle East into humans, and that actually continues to jump from camels into humans. Um, constantly, and then we now we have this third human emerging coronavirus, which is now called um, SARS coronavirus two because it's quite similar to the first corona, this, the first SARS coronavirus, um, and we know that this this coronavirus causes the disease COVID nineteen, and we think that this virus came from an animal. You know, we don't think it just popped up into humans out of nowhere, and um, we're pretty sure we know all the human viruses that currently infect us so this has to come from somewhere that came from an animal and and most likely that came from some sort of animal and within China. So how would it have transmitted from an animal to humans? We don't really know the exact uh, mechanisms of this and in fact we don't really know what kind of animal it was so it was probably some sort of mammal and when we look into nature we ask nature who what animals are carrying similar coronaviruses it tends to be bats and so this led us to the idea that perhaps bats um, are ultimately sort of seeding these coronaviruses into humans. Um, but of course, our contact with bats isn't that frequent. Um, we don't have much contact with bats one way or the other. So tends, there tends to be some sort of intermediate host, we call them. And for example, for the um, for MERS, we know this was camels. Um, you know, there are lots of bat-like or MERS-like bat viruses, and then it jumped into camels, then into humans. And for the original SARS-1 virus, um, it was bats and then into a thing called a civet cat, which is a kind of carnivore, a kind of cat um, that is farmed and eaten in China. Um, but for this new coronavirus, we don't really know. And that would be a great um, piece of the puzzle for us to understand and um, really where this virus comes from. And maybe we could stop it in the future, but we do need to know that um, right now. And you say that there are four coronaviruses related to the common cold, is that right? Right, so we know humans now have seven coronaviruses, four of these MRE common cold viruses that no one's really heard of, and they have funny names like um, human coronavirus 229E, NL63, OC43, um, and HKU1. So not very very catchy names, Um, and they're, they're endemic in the human population. They will infect all of us probably by you know, over the course of our lives. Um, and they mostly cause common cold. Of course, they can cause more severe lung infections and maybe immunocompromised people or older individuals. So you know, they're well known in diagnostic diagnostic labs across the world. They're well known by, you know, um, maybe pediatricians or an infectious disease specialists. But outside of that, they are less well known. Um, and that's kind of um, 
you know, taken over by their um, more dangerous cousins, SARS-1, SARS-2 and MERS. Yes. And the so coronavirus, that reflects. That refers to the the shape of the virus when it's when it's viewed under a microscope. As simple as that, really. There's little crowns on top of the virus. Yeah, so we've known about coronaviruses for um, for decades, um, and that's really because they do they do cause diseases in in wildlife or in, in other animals such as pigs and cats um, and mice. Um, and but when we look them under them under the microscope, this powerful electron microscope, and they look like kind of um, little sun little suns and they've got these spikes on the surface and then this is the this is where the term corona comes from kind of a this crown shape or or sun-like shape um, of the actual virus particle so now everything it looks like that um, and then this has been backed up through you know more molecular methods looking at the genomes and evolution of coronaviruses everything that looks like that is now called a coronavirus so historically then we've been used to living with and dealing with coronavirus but it seems that in recent years with SARS-1 with MERS now with what you're calling SARS-2 COVID-19 coronavirus we're dealing with a, a more deadly strain of coronavirus do we know why that is no so um you know at the minute the ones that that take over our imagination are the SARS MERS and and the SARS-2 viruses, and they're quite dangerous. So they've got a, a case fatality rate, you know, 1% or upwards, which is quite um, which is quite dangerous. And then, you know, this new one can spread quite well. So we're really worried about these ones. But um, that leaves us sort of why are they odd uh, compared to the, the other ones we've got at the minute? And when we look at, when we ask, where did those other common cold viruses come from? And they might, they tend to follow the same kind of evolutionary history as what these recent ones are, but we just weren't able to watch it happening. So we can find relatives of the other common cold coronaviruses in other animals, such as bats or or cows as well. So we hypothesize, or scientists have hypothesized that actually in the not too distant past, um, these viruses have jumped into humans um, from bat or another animal and now they're spreading and they're endemic within the human population and perhaps they caused a more serious disease when they first jumped and something is different in uh, maybe the epidemiology or um, host evolution or viral evolution that makes them sort of less deadly i think what we're seeing now with um, SARS-1 SARS-2 and MERS is that this initial jump um, it can be quite deadly. People don't have much immunity to that. But actually, that might change over time as the virus becomes um, endemic in the human population. Yeah, so we may end up developing uh, an immunity to what, what you're calling SARS-2. But just so we're clear, that is what what is commonly called the coronavirus, COVID-19. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, to, to clarify the names, you know, people call it coronavirus, but there are lots of coronaviruses. So the disease is called COVID-19. This is the virus that causes COVID-19 or COVID-19 virus, but officially the virus is called SARS-Coronavirus-2. Yeah, so we may over time develop this herd immunity that we've heard so much about, but but sadly a lot of people will have died. Right, so th- this is a really you know, important part of the discussion, and we know that you know, with lots of viruses, people do mount an immune response, and if they survive, this immune response will... Um, well, well, one, it will help clear the viral infection. And then if they do survive, and this might leave them uh, immune in the next coming months. Although for this virus, we don't really know um, for how long that will last. We have seen patients do mount an immune response. This can protect um, 
you know, does does exhibit some sort of immunity against virus, uh, coronavirus reinfection. We don't know why that'll, that lasts for we, But we do know for other coronaviruses that this does not last forever. You know, this isn't like some of the vaccines we get where you just get one shot for life, but it might wane over time. And that's actually really important because that might drive these um, seasonal epidemics. So like we have with flu season, you know, in the future, we might see um, coronavirus season popping up in the winter. Mm. So take me back then to China and the outbreak of this coronavirus then of SARS-2. We we don't exactly know how it ends up being transmitted to humans from, we think, bats ultimately, but that seems to be the chain. Uh, and, and how does it then start manifesting itself in the human population? I guess the wider global community first got alerted to this on the, I think, but the 31st of December, and that's when when China or the news sort of came out of China that there was this cluster of um, pneumonia. So this is a lung infection that was not caused by a bacteria and it was not caused by a known viral infection. Um, and this got everyone worried because it sounds a lot like SARS. Um, and we have to take these viruses seriously because they can kill a lot of people and they can spread them well enough. So people were all worried about that from then. Um, and then it emerged shortly after that, you know, that actually they had really seen a lot of cases maybe a couple of weeks prior to that um, surrounding a, a wet food market in um, the central uh, region of China, this Hubei province and in the city of Wuhan. And when they did epidemiological investigations on this cluster of viral pneumonia, they, they could see that there was a big um, burst of um, infections around this market. Again, feeding into this idea that, you know, in these markets, they're called a wet market or it's a live market. They bring lots of animals, wild animals or semi-farmed animals and other farmed animals. And they bring them in from the countryside uh, and to sell into the city. And they bring lots of animals all together, potentially helping spreading infections. Um, and they also, um, you know, there's a lot of close contact with humans. So I think this is a plausible area of that the virus might have, um, originated. Um, we don't know what animal it was in there. Um, there have some been some links that you know, they don't tend to bring bats in. They don't really eat bats in these markets. They don't sell bats. So it's unlikely to be a bat. But whether there was something like a, a civet cat there that might have picked up the virus, there has been implications that this animal called a pangolin, a, a kind of scaly mammal, might have something to play. You know, pangolins carry similar viruses. Um, but we don't know exactly what it was. Okay, but again, just so we're clear then, it's thought that somewhere uh, a bat might have infected perhaps a pangolin, perhaps a civic cat. We don't honestly really know for sure, but because of the close proximity of these animals with the virus in these so-called wet markets, markets for live animals in China, that proximity means that if the virus was passed from an animal to a human, it would then be passed very quickly to other humans and initiate this quite quick spread of the, the disease. Yeah, so, so then there's also a complicating factor that when they looked closely at this, they, they actually found a number of cases that were not linked to the market. And actually, they were some of the earliest cases. And what's coming out from when we study the genetics of this virus, that we can pinpoint the origin um, not in early December or in mid-December around this market outbreak, but actually maybe a couple of weeks and a month passed before that. And China's beginning to release some information that 
they had indication that there was an ongoing outbreak um, which, right from the beginning of November or early November um, leading up to this wet market. So this puts it a bit more complicating. Um, we think that this wet market had a very important role in spreading the virus. And so what, what we see now um, has a lot of direct sort of relation to this wet market, but likely there was something happening in the, the preceding weeks. And we're trying to piece that together at the minute. And we, we know from after SARS-1 was investigated that people in China or some people in sort of rural China do seem to have had a lot of contact with these coronaviruses, and, but we don't really see these outbreaks happening. So we think that there's exposure of humans in, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, with coronaviruses, but that that's not enough to really um, lead to an outbreak, an epidemic. So I think something has to happen in that. Um, and we're not really sure to turn that virus, to make the virus uh, more easily transmissible. You know, viruses are very well adapted to their particular hosts. So they're well adapted to a bat or maybe a pangolin or a civet cat. And, but of course, it's very different to, the, to a human. So the virus kind of has to adapt in some way to the human body and um, human and transmission and we think perhaps in this preceding weeks that's what we were seeing and then once it reached the ability to transmit well then you had this very explosive outbreak leading to the epidemic and leading ultimately to the pandemic we see now mm. so perhaps the virus finds a host in a human being initially it doesn't really hurt that human being but somehow in quite a short period of time the virus evolves and finds a way to transmit itself to other human beings and and then to multiply through to other human beings that's a kind of theory and we we expect that to have happened but this is very hard to track and especially it's going to be impossible to track sort of from the from many months onwards but we think that that's the kind of process that had to have happened but we do know from that point onwards then it's a rapid acceleration through china and then onto the rest of the world yeah, that's it. So we saw the first, you know, this initial first wave in mainly within the Hubei province and then out, but then across China and East Asia. And then after that, we, we saw it was a bit of a, it was, it looked like it had been controlled for a bit. And then we realized there was these very large outbreaks happening in South Korea, in Iran and Italy. And then, you know, since then, the focus has actually shifted from Asia to Europe Um and then, of course, I think nearly every country now has cases because this virus seems to spread well enough when you aren't too sick and you don't really notice it. So you can get on a plane, you can you can then fly to lots of different countries. You know, you could just be walking down the street. Um, so you know, it's very hard. It's very easy, for example, for this virus to spread. And I think that's what we've seen. Um, it's spreading across the world. Yes, and. The UK government has tried to manage the development of coronavirus within the population initially by encouraging people essentially to carry on as normal before moving into the the next phase of of mitigation against coronavirus. Has that been wise? We've seen other countries moving to, to lockdown situations more quickly. Has the government's stance put us at unnecessary risk or was there was the sense in trying to drive us towards some kind of herd immunity? Um, 
So one thing we don't know what will work. We haven't seen a coronavirus pandemic play out before. Um, you know, the last pan, most pandemics, in fact, probably all pandemics that we do know about are all influenza virus pandemics. Um, and, and these pandemics, they, influenza spreads very, very easily and very rapidly. And, and it's almost impossible to try and contain. Um, I, I think that, that, that kind of past experience might have colored um, how, how people have dealt with it here. Um, however, we know that in China and in other Asian countries who saw the first outbreak and actually who have lived through SARS-1, they knew that you had to shut this thing down very quickly uh, in order to control it. And that is really through, of course, we don't have a vaccine. We don't have drugs to target the virus. You have to test people, isolate, quarantine, you know, impose social distancing and hygiene measures to try and control this. Um, and when we saw that these kind of the WHO picked up on this and they recommended this test, 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 and then isolate. And, and that was a strategy that, that the WHO was going for. And of course, they are you know, trying to coordinate a global response. This is a pandemic. This isn't a local epidemic. This is really a, a global effort. And that's what they're um, that's what that's what they were recommending. And of course, the UK seemed to have taken this other approach um, where it was maybe a bit of a relaxed approach at the start. Uh, but you know, they always said that they will bring in these measures. It was always balanced with the cost of bringing them in too soon, you know, because if you close schools, um, for example, you know who's going to look after the kids? It's the grandparents; they're more at risk. Um, what about NHS staff? Are they going to be called out of the front line of the NHS? So I think they were balancing these different things. Um, but of course, now what we have seen is they've done a little bit of a I wouldn't say a U-turn, but they've brought their their plans forward a bit in into line. Um, and they, they, they did quote this idea of herd immunity. Um, and this is the idea that they might try and protect the most vulnerable people while letting the kind of virus spread a bit in the human population um, to build up some sort of um, barrier to the virus sort of coming back. Because there's always a fear that this isn't a short-term problem. This virus is could be with us for, or probably likely will be with us for you know, months and years and maybe forever. So you have to try and safeguard from those effects. And really from uh, isolating in itself um, will leave you susceptible to more waves of this in the future. So I think what the government was trying their best to sort of balance the short-term with their long-term um, efforts. But really, we don't know what will work in the long-term. Um, but what we do know what can help in the short term is this um, WHO-backed um, testing and isolating and quarantining. And, and it looks that the UK is now moving in towards that um, direction again. Yes. And I've spoke to a lady in Madrid, in Spain, which is effectively now in uh, as close to total lockdown as any modern European city could ever be. You are allowed to go to the shops and to the pharmacy that's about it and if you go out socially you are at risk of a substantial fine if the coronavirus continues to expand at its current rate do you think it's inevitable that those kind of measures are going to have to be adopted here yeah yeah so again we know that this you know this kind of social isolation and distancing and you know, this, this helps and um, control the spread of it and, and what we're interested in the uk is protecting the vulnerable people um, and we don't want a big a very big early epidemic that will um, you know, really knock off our um, or swamp our um, intensive care units and, and sort of really hurt the NHS and then we won't be able to respond to you know, anything else. So we're trying to avoid that. And this is this 
flatten the curve to try and get less cases um, all at once and maybe push it out um, push it out longer. And we're hoping to um, to really do that. There's many countries that have avoided lockdowns, but we can't take anything off the table. And you know what, what the UK will be doing is be watching um, and seeing how this how this approach actually affects it affects the spread. We know we're testing enough people to get some idea of how fast this is spreading. And um, I think they've released that it, it, you know, it is spreading. It hasn't really reached the fastest it can get. The worst is yet to come. But other some parts of the country seem to be um, spreading or spreading it faster. For example, London seems to be you know at a, at a later stage than, say, um, Belfast. So we might see partial lockdowns in different parts of the country at different times. And again, they're just trying to balance this this cost of lockdown with um, the benefit from it, but I, I would be, I would expect a lockdown to happen um, sooner rather than than later. Okay, listen, that is a really interesting, and it catches it all together, brings it all together in one really easily understood uh, explanation. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. I really appreciate it. No problem. Bye bye. That's Dr. Connor Bamford of Queen's University, Belfast, and my thanks to him. And don't forget, wherever you are in the world listening to this, we want to hear your coronavirus stories. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow the coronavirus podcast on my Twitter account at Goldberg Radio. Thanks very much indeed for listening and stay safe.